0: Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, And Solomon the father of Reboam, And Reboam the father of Abjah, And Abjah the father of Asaph, And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, And Joram the father of Uzziah, And Uzziah the father of Jotham, And Jotham the father of Azah, And Azah the father of Hezekiah, And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jechoad Jico- and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And at the deportation to Babylon, Jeconah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abid, and Abid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elud, and Ulid the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that uh, you would engage our hearts this morning to see what what treasure, what glory, what goodness you have for us in this this strange word. Um, help us to lean in and, and hear what you might have to say to us about this 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 great glorious plan that we get to be a part of through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I bet that's the first time you've heard that passage read uh, in church, right? <laughs> Thank you very much, Emelina. You did a great job. Um, this is one of those texts uh, that you just, when you, you know, you're doing your, your devotions and you, you come to this text and you begin to read all these strange names. And what do you do? You skip it. Admit it. You're all guilty. We're all guilty of this. We've all skipped those 17 verses. And so now, maybe for some of you, for the first time, you've actually read them all the way through. Um, What we like to do when it comes to Matthew 1 is we go right to verse 18. And you get into that great narrative about the birth of Jesus. And that's where we think the story begins. But Matthew is saying that isn't where the story begins. It begins with all these names, these strange names that we skip over. This is a rarely read and a seldom preached passage. But I maintain that we need these verses. You need these verses in your Bible. Because these verses at the beginning of the New Testament tell us something profound and important about Jesus. They tell us that Jesus is connected to the great plan of redemption that that God has been unfolding and working and revealing throughout the whole history of Israel that we have in the first two-thirds of our Bible. We need this. Don't neglect the Old Testament because the first verse and the first section of the New Testament can't be understood In fact, I would say the whole New Testament can't be understood apart from the Old Testament. So we we need this. Look at verse 1, the first verse in the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To understand who Jesus is, we need the Old Testament. So Matthew starts with a, a genealogy. Why does he start with a genealogy? Well, I think one of the reasons he starts with a genealogy, I think there's several, but one of them is that he wants us to know that Jesus just does, doesn't appear out of nowhere. You know, he, he's, he's, not like, um, he's not like some divine superhero who comes riding on a thunderbolt out of heaven. Boom, and he's here to fix all our problems. That's not the way Jesus comes into the world. Jesus doesn't arrive arrive out of nowhere. His arrival, his identity, in fact, his entire ministry are all deeply rooted in the history of Israel revealed in the Old Testament. You can't understand it apart from that. Now, for the ancient Jewish people, genealogies were really important. Very important. They they meticulously recorded them and preserved them, because through their genealogical records, every Israelite ultimately knew not just where they came from, but, but how they fit into the life of the nation. They knew where they belonged in the big scheme of things by what clan or what tribe they were a part of. That was very important. It helped them figure out their identity. But in addition to that, genealogies are also a way in which the Israelites tracked the 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 faithfulness of God to His promises and to His people. So genealogies very important. Now, you know maybe as you began to hear these words, these these strange names read aloud, you you know your your mind kind of went into fuzz mode, and you you're eyes rolled back in your head and you were fighting sleep. But I think that might, be, that might have less to do with the Bible and more to do with us. Because genealogies like this that were so important to the Jewish people uh, don't tend to be so important to us. Um, they sound strange to us. Fixation, the, the Bible's full of genealogies and we, we skip every one of them. But I think that's the problem with us, because, because we identify ourselves much more by our achievements than by our ancestors, don't we? You see, we, we see ourselves in this culture, in this time, in this age, we see ourselves as, as individuals with rights and choices, we, we don't see ourselves as members of a historic community with obligations and responsibilities to one another, which is exactly the way the Jewish people would have understood themselves, which I would suggest the way the New Testament believers should understand themselves. The problem is with us and the way that we've been discipled more by the culture than by the Bible. And... and and I understand, I, you know, we, we breathe this cultural air, don't we? And, and frankly, and I'm not trying to be overly critical, but we live in a, in a very shallow, one might say a, a rootless culture. Um, our culture, the, the air that we breathe that gets into us, that, that gives us many of the assumptions that we don't even bother questioning in life, um, Makes us feel di- disconnected and sort of uprooted from, from time and history and, and place and community. You know, in, in, in our world, in our time, in our age, you know, we're, we're very busy, aren't we, constructing our own identities? We're customizing our own lifestyle, it's all very bespoke. Yeah, we're, we're customizing our careers. We're customizing our futures. We're customizing our living arrangements. It all, it all sounds exciting. But what is the cost? What is the cost? Charles Drew writes this. He says, We enjoy unbridled freedom and seemingly unlimited options. But they exist in a social milieu that has no coherent story. We are free to be ourselves, but we are fuzzy about who we are and how we fit in with what is going on around us. See, I think the symptoms of this problem are all around us. They're in us. This is a serious problem. Just, just this last uh, month, earlier this month, um, the Wall Street Journal ran a feature article, and the, the title on the article was The, the Loneliest Generation. The, the writer says this, The irony is, at a time when we are more connected to others through social media, we are facing what many are calling a loneliness crisis. I suspect this is part of why, you know, this crisis is feeling uprooted, this feeling lonely. I suspect that that is what's driving an uptick in the interest of people kind of doing their, their family tree and checking their lineage through Ancestry.com and 23 Me. You know, we're, we're trying to recover a sense of connectedness. But the problem is, you can have a long list of names behind you, but we, we're trying to work it out in a in a culture and in a time that has completely lost its sense of history and, and has it lost its story, its coherent story, as Charles Drew says. You know, I, I could tell you, and I grew up, Hearing this from my dad all the time. This was a big thing in our house, and and I hope this doesn't sound wrong. But my family came to America in 1620. They 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 moved to uh, Nova Scotia in 1756, and and this was a big deal in my house. But yeah, it might be interesting to share you know over a meal with somebody. Yeah, you know, 1620. But let me tell you, none of that story, and I had, I've got a book at home. It's about this thick. It's our genealogy. I'm, I'm 13th generation of my family in North America. And I could look at that, but that doesn't give me a sense of being deeply connected. Something that, that is connected to a hope that is beyond me and all those who have died before me. I have only ever found that through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is his genealogy. And if you have faith in him this morning, if you are in Christ, this is your genealogy. I am happy to throw my genealogy out the window. I don't care. This is the genealogy I want to read. This is my story more than 1620 and 1756 are ever going to be. Now, I'm off my notes. That's because here, that's because Jesus' genealogy, what what Matthew wants us to get here, not my genealogy, not your genealogy, Jesus' genealogy is good news for the whole world. And that's what I want to try and unpack a little bit with you this, this morning. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 is this summary verse at the end of the whole list. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There's obviously a pattern here. There's a symmetry here. This is not a complete list of all the names. This is a selected list. It's shaped by the author to convey a message. I wish we had the time to get into all of it. It's rich. But let me just point out this. There's a symmetry there. There's there's three periods, basically, in, in this genealogy. You've got the period from Abraham to David, and then you've got the period from David to the deportation to Babylon, and then you've got this third period from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. Now, by the way, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ is the Greek word for the translation of the Hebrew word uh, Messiah, which means anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one par excellence. That's a freebie. But here's where I want to go this morning. I want to follow this outline, this symmetry, these these uh, periods that Matthew gives us, and I want to... I want to look at three key moments in Israel's history, which Matthew touches on, in order for us to learn together that Jesus is the Messiah, the the Anointed One, who fulfills all of God's promises to bless the world. That's why this genealogy is good news for the whole world. I want to try and show that to you this morning. We're going to look at three things. Three key moments in the whole history of Israel. The call of Abraham, the promise to David, and the problem of exile. There's my outline. The call of Abraham, the promise to David, and the problem of exile. So let's jump in. The call of Abraham. If you look at Matthew's genealogy here, he mentions Abraham three times. You've got him in verse 1, you've got him in verse 2, and then you've got him again in verse 17. And in fact, in verse 1, Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of Abraham. In his flesh, as a human being, Jesus is fully divine and fully human, and As for his uh, human descent, he is a son or a descendant of Abraham. Now, to think of the importance of Abraham in the Bible, and this this, this comparison falls well short, but Abraham is to Israel what George Washington is to the United States. Abraham is Father Abraham. He's the, the patriarch of the whole nation. In fact, um, the three great monotheistic faiths of the world, christianity or Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all trace their origins back to Abraham. They're all Abrahamic faiths. So, in order to understand how momentous, how significant, how important is the call of Abraham in uh, Genesis 12, I think what we need to do is just sort of understand the story so far. What's happened in Genesis 1 to 11? So, here is like the most ridiculous summary um, ever given. Many of you know in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he makes Adam and Eve, in his own image, he makes humanity in his image for his glory. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And then in Genesis 3, things take a bit of a turn for the worse. The, the serpent, Satan, comes into the garden. He tempts our first parents, Adam and Eve. Um, they rebel against God, and they end up being exiled out of paradise, out of the Garden of Eden. Now, right in the middle of Genesis 3, in verse 15 and 16, God has basically come. The the man and the woman have rebelled. They've succumbed to the temptation of the serpent. And and God is pronouncing a judgment and a curse on the serpent and also um, on Adam and Eve. And in verse 15... In the middle of pronouncing this judgment, God gives a promise, a very important promise. This is, this is the first reference to the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And God promises, even though there's going to be enmity and strife and conflict and trouble and judgment, God promises in the middle of that. That there is going to be a son, a seed, a descendant who will come from the woman. And Satan is going to bruise him. But he will ultimately be victorious because he will stamp on the head and he will crush the head of Satan. He will destroy the works of the devil, as First John says. So those are the first three chapters. I would suggest to you, you cannot understand the Bible if you don't begin there. But then, in, in chapters 4 to 11, and this is, I'm really going to accelerate, it, it kind of goes from bad to worse. You know, you've got murder, mayhem, um, everybody is just, it's cats and dogs living together. It's That was for you, Kim. It's just gone crazy. The whole world, it's wickedness and selfishness and sin and it spread throughout the whole face of the earth and God brings judgment through the flood and he it's just terrible but then woven into this dark picture of sin and judgment there's a a beautiful silver thread of hope because remember I talked about the seed of the woman, the, the son of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent? We, we detect that God is preserving a people for himself. He does that through Noah, and then through Noah's son Shem, and then down through Shem, we follow. There's several genealogies in chapter 5, and then again in chapter 10. And there's these genealogies that bring us right up to a guy named Terah, who you may not have heard of, but he happens to be the father of a guy named Abraham. And they live in Ur of the Chaldeans, probably somewhere you're not planning to go on your vacation, because it doesn't exist anymore. It's an archaeological site in Iraq. And uh, they, Abraham and and Abram at the time and his father Terah, they live in Ur of the Chaldeans. They're pagans. And that's where the the picture turns in Genesis 12. All of that's, you know, context. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, he changes his name, God changes his name later to Abraham. He said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. It's the land of Canaan, the promised land. Verse 2, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Mark that. We'll come back to it. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families or all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God says here that He is going to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham. That's kind of a huge promise. That might involve us. That involves all people in all cultures in all nations and all tribes in all tongues everywhere throughout all time. Big promise. Now, it's interesting to note that this promise happens right after what I talked about a moment ago through the, this terrible mess at the Tower of Babel. You know that story, right? The, 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 uh, all the people are united together, and they're all full of themselves, and you know, we're going to, they say in, in, in Genesis 11, for we're going to make a great name for ourselves. And they build this monument, this great tower to celebrate how special they are. And God comes down and says, yeah, that's not going to work. The construction site is canceled. And uh, he confuses their languages and he spreads them out. He, he scatters them throughout the face of the earth. That's a, a judgment that God brings on them. And, and so what we read by, by the juxtaposition between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham, we, we, we figure out that the call of Abraham is God's response to the problem of human sin and pride, this universal problem. And instead of us, which is our tendency in this culture to make a name for ourselves... God is the one who promises to make a name for Abraham. Now, I have to stop there and just say, which are you pursuing? Is it all really, do you think a lot about how am I going to make a name for myself in this world? See, that's the spirit of, of Babel. And it doesn't end well, friends. Or are you content? And I mean that, truly content. Boy, discontentment is rampant at Christmas, isn't it? Just drive out there. <laughs> um, are you content to to let God make a name for you? No matter what that name is. No matter what others think of that name. Are you content for God to make your name great in his way? Because that's the promise that God made to Abraham. And I think that that's the promise that God made, makes to, to all those who are children of Abraham, which we are in Christ, the son of Abraham, but I'm getting ahead of myself and I'm running out of time. So there's this great promise. God is going to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham. Huge. But how is he going to do it? Because as you read on in your Bibles, if you've read your Old Testament, you read the book of Genesis, it hasn't happened yet. You read through the whole book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and in through the historical books and even through the prophets and you get to the Malachi, that, that last page before the blank white page between the New and the Old Testament. You get to the end of Malachi and it hasn't happened yet. There are little hints here and there. There are some blessings to the nations. But it hasn't happened. God has not yet, by the end of the the, the history of Israel recorded in the Old Testament, brought about the blessing of all the nations of the earth that he promised to bring about through Abraham. It hasn't arrived. So first scene, second scene. Now, the promise of David. We've looked at the the call of Abraham. What about the promise of David? We're skipping over hundreds of years here, but we're just landing on a few key moments in history of Israel. In Matthew 1 to uh, to 17, David is mentioned five times. He's really the key player in this whole genealogy, except for Jesus. And in verse 6, we read this, And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon. Now, David is indisputably the greatest king in the whole history of Israel. He conquered, I mean, he really kicked and he conquered Israel's enemies. He brought peace to the whole nation. He established the capital, Jerusalem. You know, he is this great king. He's the model king. And so then in, in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord comes to this king that he is anointed to rule over his people. And then in verses 12 to 14, we read this. And if you thought the other promise was great, let this one hit you. Could you imagine God coming to you and making you this promise? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's a polite way of saying when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, He'll be a, a direct descendant of David, and I will establish his kingdom, singular. He shall build a house for my name. House can be a, a building, but we also sometimes talk about the, the House of Windsor, meaning the dynasty, the royal dynasty of the, the family of Windsor, the family that rules in Great Britain. So, house is that there's a play on words here. It's a building, it's a house, it's a temple, or it's a dynasty. And that's what God is promising. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then in verse 16, the Lord says, And your house, your dynasty, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever just in case you didn't get it the first time i told you what an amazing promise this is a forever reign of a davidic king even after david's dead so what's god going to do this is going to have to be a pretty remarkable king this it's going to endure forever now, if we took the time to read the whole narrative in second uh, Samuel and and beyond would see that this promise is only partially fulfilled, only briefly and partially fulfilled in David's son Solomon. Solomon, it's it's kind of like David and then like Solomon. They were the two great kings. Uh, Solomon expanded the kingdom of Israel. He pushed out its boundaries. Um, people came from all over the world. The nation started to be blessed through Solomon because they heard of how great and wise he, he was. And so they came to check out his wisdom and thought, boy, wow, you are smart. And so, you know, there's, there's blessing coming that way. But it's only partial. It's only partial. Because it doesn't take long before Solomon falls into sin. And then after him, the, the people follow after their king, and they fall into sin. And the, the kingdom is divided. You no longer have a united kingdom of Israel. It's now divided into the tribes of the north and some of the tribes in the south around Jerusalem. And then eventually, um, Solomon dies, and after him comes kings who are, are, these are not good people. They're ruthless. They oppress the people. They're selfish. They're idolaters. So in light of these failures, what happens to David's promises? Are they just dead in the water? The game's over? No. What happens in light of the inability of any king to take up the mantle of these promises and to live them out? The prophets arrive on the scene and they believe the the promises, they see them, they hear them, they know they're from God, they know God will fulfill them. But what they do in light of the failure, the the perpetual failure of these kings and these descendants of Abraham to to live out and and really bring fulfillment to these promises, these promises begin to go prophetic. They take on what's called a prophetic and an eschatological quality that's on the test. They begin to to see how God is going to fulfill these promises in the future. And they they look to a coming king, a, a coming Messiah, an anointed one who will fulfill these promises. Now, there's many texts that we could go to, but one of my favorites is in Psalm 72. This is talking about the Davidic king. And the psalmist prays, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. That's verse 1. And then in verse 11 of Psalm 72, we read this. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. He's not just looking for any sort of king. He wants the king of kings. The king that all other kings submit themselves to. This is a different kind of a king. He wants the king who rules not one nation, but all nations. All the nations serve this great king. Finally, in verse 17, it says, May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations you hear the, the Abrahamic promise being echoed here. All nations call him blessed. So how is this going to happen? How is it going to happen? How is it going to be fulfilled? Well, you know, you'd think, you think know, it goes from some mild failure and then Jesus comes. That's, that's not even half of it because we, we haven't looked at the third point yet, the problem of exile. You know, If you thought things were bad in the division of the kingdom and these bad kings that came along, things went from the frying pan into the fire. Matthew talks about the exile as the deportation to Babylon. This is, no question, the lowest point in Israel's history. You'd almost give up the game. Now, back in Deuteronomy, I know I'm jumping around a lot, but I hope I'm able to... Keep your attention. Back in Deuteronomy, God warned the nation of Israel before they entered the promised land. He said this, if you break my covenant, if you break my covenant, I am going to remove you from the land that you're you're taking as an inheritance to possess. The land flowing with milk and honey, it's like Eden. He says, I'm going to take you out of that land and I am going to take you off into a foreign land. God warned them. And what happened? You guessed it. That's exactly what happened. In 722, the Assyrian Empire came down and landed with fierce force on the the northern tribes of Israel, wiped them out, decimated. Thank you for playing. The game is over. Haven't heard from them since. And then... Later on, in 597 BC, the Babylonians came and did the same things to the southern tribes. And what did they do? They, they they took over, they ransacked, they burned down Jerusalem, they ruined it, they looted the city, they looted the temple, and then they deported or exiled in several trips, a massive population of the southern tribes took them off over a thousand miles away into Babylon that's what Matthew's talking about in verse 11 Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon now at this point in time you have to be saying there's no hope it's all over just give up very sad. Look at Psalm 137. This expresses the sadness of this situation. They say, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. We remembered the great temple. We remembered the great city of David. We remembered the kingdom. We remembered the promises. We had such hope and now it's all gone. On the willow trees there, we hung up our lyres For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of your songs of Zion. They they have no more voice to sing. They can't do it. They put their guitars away because their hope is gone. This is very dark. How did all this happen? How did it happen? Well, I think this is a word that applies to us. This isn't all just ancient history. Because just as the Israelites failed to heed the warnings of God before they went into the promised land, I think that's our tendency too. See, we don't really believe that God is a just judge who who will justly judge sin. We don't believe that. We don't live with a, a sober sense of that. Israel didn't and we're just like them much of the time. God warned them. God warns us. Hebrews 9.27 said, It is appointed for man to die once and then what? And after that, to face the judgment. Judgment is real. Sin is not just ancient Israel's problem. It's a universal problem. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that all of us, without exception, are children of wrath. Because we are dead in our transgressions and sin. I know this isn't a happy Christmas theme. But if we are to understand the glory of the incarnation of the Son of God coming into the world... We've got to hear the bad news in order to understand and appreciate and love the good news. I've had people get angry with me because I talk about sin. But if the doctor doesn't talk about the cancer, how are you ever going to appreciate the treatment? As one person has said about the faithfulness of God... God doesn't fulfill his promises through Israel because of their righteousness. He fulfills his promises through them in spite of their sinfulness. This is the good news. While we were still sinners under the wrath of God, Christ died for us. He became sin for us. He bore the judgment that that you and I deserve. That's what we deserve. We don't deserve a Christmas bonus. But the God, the God of glory, the God of justice, the God of grace might save even us despite our sinfulness. That's the best news that the whole world could ever hear. And that's the, method, the message of Matthew's genealogy. You've got Abraham's call, and, and David's promise, and Israel's exile. But still not over. I'm running to the end here. In the rest of the genealogy, I think verses 12 to 16, you know, there's some names there. And basically, Israel wasn't wiped out. Some of them returned from Babylon a couple of groups returned from Babylon. They tried to build a new temple and start it all over again. And people were like, yeah, no, this, this is not that. It is not working out for us. In fact, Israel never knew their independence as a people again. From that time onwards, from the Babylonian exile onwards, they only ever lived under foreign oppressive government. Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. They never had their freedom. They never had their kingdom. It was all puppet kings doing what the, the real power structures wanted them to do. And so it would seem to be a loss. And that's the problem that Matthew is tracing up to and the coming of Christ himself. This is an amazing genealogy. There's so much here to mind. Don't, don't just skip over it. I've got more to say, but I'm running out of time. If you look at this genealogy, let me just tell you, these are not all stellar characters. There's murderers there. There's prostitutes there. There's liars. There's there's wicked people in this genealogy. I mean, there are some skeletons in Jesus' genealogical closet. Well, you guys are hard today. But let me just tell you this. God has only ever dealt with sinners. It's not like he has any other material to work with. But God is a God who from the very beginning in calling Abraham, in in saving Noah and and preserving, uh, keeping Abraham and calling him out of Ur of the Chaldeans when he was a pagan. God has always only ever sought and And saved sinners. So sin is never the last word. You'll never hear that from this pulpit. Sin is never the last word. Jesus Christ always has the last word. The gospel here reigns supreme. The grace of God is ultimate. And I want to speak that over your life this morning. No matter how wretched and how hopeless you may feel. Because Jesus is, and I take this, Matthew talks about it in, in Matthew 11, he is the friend of sinners. And that doesn't mean that he, he condones your sin, that he approves of our sin. That's not what it means. It means, as Matthew 121 says, that he came to save his people from their sins. I don't want to live under my selfishness and my pride. Oh, what's that ever got you? It's only ever made trouble for me. I want to be saved from all of that. I want to live under the the glorious goodness of Jesus' reign in my life. Well, let me quickly just zip from Matthew 1 to Matthew 28, because this is where we've got to go. This is the fulfillment of this promise, these great promises. In Matthew 28, you know it, it's the Great Commission. Jesus says this, let this hit you in light of what we've, we've considered. He says, all authority. All authority where in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who can make a claim like this? He has is, he is died for our sin. He is risen from the dead. He reigns forever with all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the Davidic promise fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the Davidic king. He is David's later greater son who reigns forever. That's the promise. And we reign under him through faith. And therefore, he says, here's the implication of me being the king of kings. He says, therefore, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. See, that's the promise. That's the promise blessing of Abraham. Through Jesus, now through us as the body of Christ in this world, we bring the blessing of Abraham promised 4,000 years ago. We bring that to our neighbors. We bring that to our family members tomorrow night. When we gather with those that we know who don't have a hope in Christ, we bring this good news it's not a new it's not a message of condemnation it's not a message of guilt and shame and judgment it is a message of blessing and forgiveness and reconciliation and new life in Christ why because he's the king of Everything. He's the king of our hearts. I pray my most common prayer is, Lord, get a hold of my heart and change it. Make me love what you love and hate what you hate. I can't change my heart. But I sure pray a lot that this merciful king who reigns over my heart will change it. And thank God I'm not who I once was, but I'm not yet what I shall be. And I long for that day when the king will return and the fullness of his blessing will be poured out on all people. And boy, that'll be an advent. That'll be an arrival. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you bless us with the blessing of Abraham? That we might be a blessing to the world, to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to to our colleagues, our co-workers. Lord, make us a blessing because we are in Christ who is the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so his blessings land on us by faith. And I pray that we would be a people of blessing, people of of grace, people not of condemnation, of judgment, people of forgiveness and of love, because that's that's the way you've been with us. Would you do that work in us this Christmas season, Lord, as we meet with our families and friends? Make us that kind of people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.